White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. <laughs> White man's burden. How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Thomas. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. I'm sorry to differ with you, sir. Portland, Oregon, for that matter. But you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. Thank you for saying so. I should know, sir. I've always been here. Here's to five miserable months on the wagon and all the irreparable harm that it's caused me. How are things going, Mr. Torrance? Things could be better, Lloyd. Things could be a whole lot better. I hope it's nothing serious. No. Nothing serious. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. You see that guy? My movie. Better. What is it? I don't know what it's called. What is it called? Kevin. Dylan. You ready? Son of a bitch. Total you trying to tell me that I can dodge bullets? The wrong side of the river. I'm Michael George. Stop it. Get some help. Tony Mona, the terrorist, had the president's daughter in the old bean factory off the 101. <laughs> Too bad you will die. This spirit is despicable. <laughs> Billy, what's his name show? Welcome. Hello. To the Overlook Hotel. Spooky. We're in part part two of episode 34. House. The house that eats. And this Uh, week, we are covering in a single episode... The 1980 classic horror film directed by Stanley Kubrick, The Shining. The Shining. Yes. We had to do this one in its own little world. Uh, Not like we said at the end of the last one, not because it is automatically the winner, but because we know that we are just going to have the most say about this movie. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of content in it. There's a lot to digest. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of theories. There's a lot of cool things that would have never existed if it wasn't for this movie. Uh, yep. We got a lot to we got a lot to cover exactly. in not that long. Well, in a long time, we're gonna we're milking this yeah. baby. Yeah, we'll we're milk it as long like as a we goddamn can, cow. That's right? right. But first, as always, our weird movie of the week, and this was a tough one for me because uh, another one that came out on the same day, three movies came out this day. They came out the day that this film came out. The other two were Carney, which is our weird movie of the week, and the Gong Show movie, which is a wacky movie and is a weird movie of the week in its own right. It's but in the canon. You definitely <laughs> in the weird movie canon, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the weird movie but, yeah, is Carney. I gotta give it to Carney um, because Carney is just 
is just funnier to me, and it's just because of one thing. So Carney is a 1980 uh, drama film about a waitress who joins a traveling carnival. Mm -hmm. Waitress is played by Jodie Foster, and a lovable clown is played by Gary Busey. And Robbie Robertson. Like the the like, uh, I think they call him an, an adjuster for the Carney. He's like the oh tough guy God. who also like helps fix games and stuff. But he like he like is like the muscle kind of what? of it. Um, and it also has a uh, Fred Ward. America's top security experts have chosen this man. Don't take any chances. This guy's a killer. For a special mission. But first, he's got to pass one little test. Speaking English. A uh, favorite of the podcast. Hell yeah, he is. Yeah, we featured him in the uh, movie The Player. Uh, Ebert gave the film Carney two out of four stars. He said, Carney is bursting with more information about American carnivals than it can contain. <laughs> Surrounding a plot too thin to support it. Inside this movie is a documentary struggling to get out. Uh, but Siskel gave it three and a half stars, calling it superb, calling Busey superb and stating, there's a simple way to evaluate a film such as Carney, a film so obviously in love with its subject and that is whether it makes us want to attend a carnival. Carney does um and it's just it's a silly movie and it's I mean it's not really it's a drama so like it it, it just it's it's more the weird than the dumb or the yeah, funny this week for, sure. for this one uh but I couldn't pass it up because Robbie Robertson anyway it was 1980 the 70s are officially over but they're still lingering on we had the location of one of the most revered and most well-respected horror movies of all time. In fact, pretty much the uh, granddaddy of, one of the granddaddies, I should say, of the horror genre, as we kind of mentioned in our uh, part one episode with films like Halloween and uh, The Exorcist and stuff, kind of the beginnings of the wave of horror. Right. Uh, the Shine, yeah, Shining uh, came out in 1980, as I said. It produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick, and co-written with novelist Diane Johnson. 
Um, and she was super important to the crafting of this story. The film itself is based on Stephen King's 1977 novel, The Shining, and it stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, and that guy's being Doc, and Danny Lloyd as Danny. It is about an aspiring writer, recovering alcoholic, who accepts a position as an off-season caretaker at the isolated Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies. Wintering over with Jack are his wife, Wendy, and their young son, Danny. And Danny possesses The Shining, which is a psychic ability that enables to see into the hotel's horrific past. And also, I think, in general, it allows him to see bits of the future or of possible futures. Not always what the future will be, but what it could be. Yeah, yeah. He, um, Scatman's character yeah. kind of alludes to that where you can see things that had happened, things that are happening, things that are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so Jack, as you mentioned, plays... It's kind of funny. Jack plays Jack. Danny, Danny plays, plays Danny. Danny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shelley Duvall plays Wendy Torrance. Uh, Scatman Crothers is Dick. Um, Barry Nelson is Stuart Ullman. And Philip Stone is Delbert Grandy. Or Grady. These are all important people. There's really yes. not many characters in the movie, though. No, I mean, it, the centrally, it focuses on really, you know, Jack, uh, Wendy, Danny, and Dick Halloran. Right. Um, it is widely acclaimed by today's critics, but it wasn't as well-loved when it came out. It sort of has a similar um, problem with the critics as The Thing did to then later have such critical acclaim, but to be so like disdained or just kind of ignored by critics. Right. And it is now the third film that I know of that we've covered recently, at least, to have been selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Which I think is well-deserved. Yes, definitely. I think it certainly belongs to be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a bunch of taglines to make up for something earlier. Um, in the last episode. Uh, so some of the iconic taglines are iconic terror from the number one best-selling writer. These are ones we talked about before where the taglines that are kind of just like try and pull you in based on who's there. Like I forget what movie it was a couple weeks ago. We covered one that was like, this director is back. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like, we, right. we covered one that was like, yeah, from the director of something. Oh, yeah, it like, might have been that John Cena movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, it was. It was. Yeah, it was the director of From this. the producer of Die Hard 2. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's like, all right, man, you're really pulling right now. Um, another good one, uh, Coming This Summer. <laughs> that one I was like, I just left it in. I was like, that's not a tagline. Um the IMDb. tide of terror. There's another one. This is a good one. Uh, the tide of terror that swept America is here. Yes. So that's when it made its way that's into the, the UK. UK. That's the UK poster. Um, a masterpiece of modern horror. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's epic nightmare of horror. The horror is driving him crazy. He came as the caretaker, but this hotel had its own guardians. Who'd been there a long time? That one's really, really like ham-handed. Yeah, it's two brothers, right, in a car. Just keeps adding, like, like keeps adding words yeah. to it. It, I don't know. I feel like it could have been like he came as the caretaker, but he but never left or something. Like would have been better. Who'd been there a long time, yeah. and they had another plan <laughs> for him that wasn't like his own, right? <laughs> Uh, the budget for this movie was 19 
million dollars. Yes. Uh, and it was a pretty good success, even though it wasn't critically acclaimed. It made forty-four point four million dollars mm-hmm. worldwide. Yeah, it had a slow start at the box office. Um, but eventually, it started to do well during the summer and made Warner Brothers a profit. It, Makes as I said, happy. Yes, it, as I said, uh, open to mixed reviews, um, and has kind of had a critical reappraisal by like even by like 1987. It was already people were starting to be like, oh, this was actually way better, and uh, just at, by 2000 by 2001, the film was ranked on. Um, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills list. Jack Torrance was named in 25th Greatest Villain on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. And the quote, Here's Johnny, was ranked 68 on their uh, 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes list. Jesus so, Christ. Yes. And that are not the only accolades that it will get, but we'll get back to that later. Some good um, ones. Yeah, actually, uh, <laughs> one that's a going to be a little shout-out to last week's episode. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, so as far as Stephen King goes, um, I'm not like a huge fan of Stephen King, but I also don't dislike his work. Uh, I like some of it. I think his book, uh, actually really big fan of the book and the film, uh, Christine, John Carpenter's Christine. Um, but in general, I don't, don't have like a huge connection with him. So like, right, I right know on. a little bit about it. I dated a girl, uh, shout out to Chelsea. I don't know if she listens, um, years ago. And she's a huge Stephen King fan, so she showed me a bunch of it, and I liked a lot of it. But I've never like had never really read his books. I've mainly only seen his stuff in film. Um, right, I gotcha. But so this film is very, very different from The Shining, the novel, uh, which I've never read. Yes, but neither have I. But yep. I did read the synopsis. Okay get more of an idea of what was different about it Um, right on right on but really majorly like the kubrick took the aesthetic and the setting and the basic plot and bare bones plot as sort of you know a way to make the film and but the characters aren't as fleshed out they're more art you know archetypal characters and the way the story flows, it focuses way more on the family's cabin fever or madness or whatever than it does on the supernatural aspects of it. And whereas in the book, it makes gives you more information about why the supernatural aspects are happening. Okay. Whereas the film leaves all of that ambiguous. Um, but there's way bigger, bigger differences. Like, for instance... Uh, the the way the film ends is very very different than from the way the novel ends and even the way that jack really plays out as a character jack is jack was written as a sort of autobiographical character obviously as a writer and an alcoholic two things stephen king was at the time you can kind of see that connection there he's also a father um and he said he wrote the film like sort of or he wrote the book i'm sorry when he was thinking about like having these sort of you know maybe violent is too far of a way to go but these antagonistic you know thoughts towards your children when they wouldn't behave you know and like where the edge of that is and and stuff like that and so jack right and so jack in the book is way more um of a conflicted character and i don't think 
you're you're supposed to view him as the villain as much as you're supposed to view the supernatural house as the villain because like in the book danny is super open about talking about the shining he like isn't as like closed mouth about it and stuff like that um by the end jack has been like essentially taken over by the house and like at one point he like is like danny like uh, like hit like the actual jack emerges and then he turns back into like basically just like a snarling beast you know and then yeah for sure and then the hotel blows up that's how the book ends the fucking boiler is like defective and they blow up the hotel and the jack beast house thing goes to try to stop it and dies so like it's kind of implied that like he attempts to get give danny he fights the house back enough to give danny enough time to escape and so he dies as like a heroic character so like completely different Dude, wildly different yeah. holy shit there's also <laughs> instead of the the hedge maze there's a topiary of like you know hedge animals that come to life and attack people also dick halloran survives the book and he's in the, yeah he's in the second book dr sleep Dude, he didn't so. stand a goddamn chance in the movie no Fuck. he does get injured by the topiary animals and by jack in the book but wow, he survives are, wow you know? Well, maybe I'll have to pick up this book because it sounds like there's a lot of different things. Yeah, it. It maybe, maybe. My problem with this book is so they're like so fucking big, man. Yeah, and crazy. The Shining is a big one, too. Yeah, it's one I of the imagine. big ones. Jesus. Uh, and King did not like this film, but he has since it, it's kind of a weird he has a weird relationship with it because he uh, he said something along the lines of um, that like Kubrick was a man who could like think a whole bunch, but like didn't feel at all or something like that. And, but I've also heard someone, there was another like critic who said that Stephen King was someone who felt, but didn't think. And that's why that they, they don't jibe as people or as, you know, personalities or whatever. Right. Um, because like he, he, I believe asked to have his name taken off the film and like a bunch of other crap like that. Like he was really against all the changes. Jesus. Um, there's also when Dick Halloran is driving and a lot of people already know this one, but I'll, I'll shout it out anyway. Um, when Dick Halloran is driving up towards the hotel, he passes a car wreck on the highway and the, one of the car, the car in the wreck is a red Volkswagen bug. Um, in the book, they had a red Volkswagen bug. At the in the movie, they have a yellow one. So there's, you know, people say that's Kubrick's being like, "Fuck you, Steven. You oh, know, shit. because they, yeah, yeah, he they were, were he was working on it, and then he didn't want to work on it anymore because him and Stanley didn't get along. And Stanley basically was like, "Dude, I I liked your book, but like I'm making my I'm making a movie. It's different. You know, I'm not. Yeah, I don't need." King was probably yeah. being a prick. Yeah, and I mean, at the time, King was, like you said, he was an alcoholic or was, you know, still was drinking, I believe. And he also, though, in his 1981 nonfiction book, Dance Macabre, he listed the film as one he considered to have contributed something of value to the horror genre and mentioned it as one of his personal favorites. So, like, (laughs) he doesn't like it as a... Uh, adaptation i feel like but he does like the film as like, a movie itself, yeah i think he's yeah. conflicted about it because i mean in like I, it's really easy for someone to just be like oh well dude what the fuck like chill out about it be- when you you know when you think of it in the terms of like well it's the shining and stanley kubrick and shit like that but 
and, and and also the fact this is I think that was his third book and like yeah Carrie was really like he was successful but like this is I think the thing that put him on the map forever you know what I mean because it was like right. he did great with his first few novels first two novels and then he just kept doing great like he didn't have a drop-off novel he just he kind of had this rocket ride you know and this was the thing that I think really made him a superstar yeah and so to be sitting there in the theater and to be watching your own work be like not your own work I can understand yeah I get his qualm yeah be like I I don't know about this but also being able to be like but it's a really good film and it's it's a I like the film I just wish it wasn't based on my work. It was, you know, yeah, not, yeah. it's not the film. Uh, it's not the film of the shining. If someone goes out and reads and so I can understand having that confliction there, I guess. Is totally. Yeah. Cause then you're inevitably going to get the people that are like, well, the movie's better than the book or like right, something right. like that. Or know? that like they'll, and he's going to be like, fuck, you know, I mean, not a, even like the book. Right. Well, and like a writer writes for a specific purpose as much as like, you know, Stanley and, and, uh, and, and Diane, or I think her name was, were, were writing their screenplay. They had a very specific goal in mind, an idea of what they wanted, and what the the, the, the themes were supposed to be, just as much as Stephen King did. And like, yeah. for him, alcoholism was a much bigger theme in the book than it is in in the movie. Yeah, so like, it's I, a lot I, more supernaturally yeah, focused. I can see you sitting there and being like. You 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 fucking changed everything yeah. about what I did. You know right, why right. did you even want to make? You know I can understand that feeling. I guess what I'm saying. As yeah. much as I can also be like, but dude, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, let you know, my... let someone interpret your work. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. You're, so this... You were successful enough that someone wants to take your work and do something with it. Right. You know, be right. happy about that. <laughs> exactly. You know, and or it's at least... not some. It's not like some bozos taking it, you know, like right. it's like Stanley Kubrick. At like, least, hey under, man, I want to yeah, make your, yeah. I want to make your book a movie. What exactly. Are you be like? Well, like, can you do that? Like, have you made a good movie before? It's like, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Several. I mean, Spartacus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So this film was released on May twenty third, nineteen eighty, the same day as, as I mentioned before, Carney and the Gong Show movie. And some other films from around this time are my personal favorite Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back. Hell yeah. Uh, Fame, Urban Cowboy, and the biblical spoof film, which, again, another one really close to uh, getting the weird movie of the week. Holy Moses! Oh, God. With an exclamation point. And you know how much I love exclamation yeah. point movies. <laughs> But uh, it's just some, like, I don't know. It seemed like it was, like, a biblical spoof, but, like, one that, like, you're, like, you would watch at church and be, like, oh, God, they made a, oh, God, the Catholics made a church spoof movie. Oh, God, they did it. What have they done? (laughs) Um, Uh, For for music in that time, uh, the number one song in the United States was Call Me by Blondie, Mm. which is a jam. And all I can think of is, like, car commercials from that. I know. Like, all I can think of is, like, uh, call me. Yeah, there's one of the local. Is that fucking Ira or something? Yeah, I think it might be Ira or something. One of the local car dealerships uses that. And it's not even the Blondie song. They said, yeah, it's like a cover, rewritten cover. Ugh. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah, it talks about cars, trucks, vans, or SUVs. Blondie is my shit. my fucking brain. Yeah, Blondie's awesome. Uh, The number one song in the uk was the theme song for mash yep 
incoming wounded. All personnel report to operating tent four. Repeat, four. I mean, five. Repeat, four. Are you ready to operate, Doctor? I'd love to, but first I have to perform surgery. <laughs> I kid, I kid. Scalpel. Blood bucket. Priest. Next patient. Gee, Zoidberg, leave some for the enemy to kill. Leave Dr. Zoidberg alone. He has twice the training you do. Yeah, he's a doctor and a butcher. <laughs> oh, see, this is how it starts. First with the jokes, then comes the heavy stuff. <laughs> when will the killing end? Uh, well, the theme from MASH. Theme from MASH. By, by the MASH. Suicide is painless. Yeah. Now, I had to put this in here because, all right, I love Robert Altman. Uh, as I've already mentioned before tonight, we watched his film The Player uh, in one of our recent episodes. Hell yeah, we did. And Altman is just great. And so I, I wanted to put this in here. The song was written specifically for the film MASH, um, Altman's film, and specifically for Ken uh, Primus's uh, character, Private Sideman, who sings it during the faux suicide of Walter Waldowski. Are you ready to operate, Doctor? I'd love to, but first I have to perform surgery. <laughs> That's my joke! I'll kill you! In the film's Last Supper scene. So Altman had two stipulations about the song for the, the writer uh, of the music. He said it was to be called Suicide is Painless, and it had to be the stupidest song ever written. Wow. <laughs> yep. Altman attempted to write the lyrics himself, but upon finding it too difficult for his 45-year-old brain to write stupid enough, he gave the task... To his 14-year-old son, Michael. Thanks, Dad. Who wrote the lyrics in five minutes. Oh, my God. Yep. Well, that's a legendary yep. story. I I love that song. It's a great song. It's I did not classic. know that story about it. Yeah. That's great. I know. Me neither. Um, so, in, did I forget? Oh, no. I didn't forget music. We just did music. 1980 uh, saw the release of a number of video games with influential concepts including Pac-Man, Battlezone, Crazy Climber, Mystery House. Mystery House? Whoa, you should have covered that. Yeah, I know, right? My video game. <laughs> Miss Missile Command, Space Panic, Zork, and Olympic Decathlon. Um, and the Atari VCS, later known as the 2600, grew in popularity with a port of Space Invaders and support from new developer Activision. Wow. Yes. Activision's done a lot of things I like. Exactly. As well, in May, uh, Stratavox was released by Sun Electronics, a.k.a. Sunsoft, the first game with voice synthesis or the artificial production of human speech. It was 1980, and people were ready. People were probably like, whoa, it's time. Yep. They're like, arcades, Make this screen go. start talking to me. Turtles in time, I want it <laughs> now. <laughs> it was like, what is that, sir? I don't it's know. Like you will. I want, <laughs> I want Bill Murray's brother singing a rap song about Noah's Arcade in a movie with Mike Myers from Saturday Night Live and Dana Carvey. Holy shit. The 1980s. You said that. It's if you coming. Said we that, want arcades. If you said that and like, I don't know, I feel like if you went back in time and just told somebody that, that would be insane. Like, <laughs> I, I'd go back in time and do things like that rather than like, it's like, oh, oh you want to yeah. go back in time and like, go to like, this old like Muhammad Ali fight or this thing. It's like, 
Nah, I'm gonna go back in time and tell people that, like, the guy who did, like, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure also did The Matrix and then <laughs> rebooted both of them in the same year. That's crazy. People would be like, wait, what the fuck are you talking are about? Are you kidding me? And they would have no idea. They'd be like, what the fuck is that guy What is that about? stuff? Yeah. And then, like, 30 years later, they'd be like, oh, shit. <laughs> That's my kind of time travel. It is. I'd probably go back to like last week so I could pay my phone bill on time. Shout oh, yeah. out to Weird Al. Or <laughs> 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 I think he says I went back to last Thursday or something. But pay my phone So, this film is uh, pretty big. This was the yeah. group pick this week. Um, I had a, f- I had a feeling you'd be calling, so to speak, when uh, I put up this poll, because this film is just like so well loved, and uh, yeah, I love it's it too. Pretty, pretty universal. Yeah. It's funny. It's like one. It's not even. It's like. I don't. I, I think I made a list before on the group, but it's not even close to my favorite Kub, uh, Kubrick film. But it like that like doesn't matter because like I feel like even if you're like if I was like oh it's like my fifth favorite, that's still like pretty good in terms of how good all of his films are. It's really right. hard, you know. And like even with with that, I even am like I cheat because I like say oh I, I Barry Lyndon and Doctor Strange Love are yeah, number right, one. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, it, it's so hard to yeah, just I like it's tough to pick, fucking you know? put one on a pinnacle like that, right? You know, especially when they're all so damn good. But or at I, least the ones you're picking from, right? You know? Right. I think though this film is like one of the most. Um, dissectable films uh, in the in film in general. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of films you can like talk about and and break down and stuff, but there's a lot of shit you can break down in this particular film more than we'll even be able to cover tonight. You know, and and the more I watch it, the more new stuff I discover. Totally. Like one of the things I just discovered uh, that I guessed. Sort of, I was thinking about it when I was watching the film this time. I was like, the, the when I was watching the the blood elevator scenes, I was like, oh yeah, they probably didn't do those at the hotel. Like they probably did those on sound stages. And then I did a little bit of research, and they did all of the interior shots on a sound stage. Really? Yeah, yeah. They Whoa. did. It's a recreation of another hotel that is like an Indian gaming resort sort of like hotel. Holy so, shit. So yeah, none of that stuff is on location. Even some of, not all of, the exterior shots are also done are on, on a sound stage. Yes. What? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's crazy. Yep. Um they were it was done at EMI Studios in uh Britain. Wow. And he actually used the same uh even though at in Barry Lyndon, these shots were on location. He did the same thing with the lighting on the outside. We talked about in Barry Lyndon, where they had like the paper on the walls, yeah. and that's where you get that oppressive, like white lighting, especially in like Jack's writing room. That just okay, yep. every, you know, and so it it it's just it lights on a soundstage, backlighting a window to make it like incredible. 
unstoppable. Dude, I can't believe that like, so much yeah. of that shit is shot on a soundstage. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It also means that everything you see in that movie is a design choice. It may be based yeah. on something at the hotel, but like that carpet, the three different, I think even there might even be more, but specifically the, you know, the the iconic you know, brown and orange and red carpet in the hallways. Yeah, yeah. The very like phallic purple and greenish carpet in room 237. And there's also another like art deco 70s like carpet in the gold room as well. Yeah. They, um, those are like choices rather because it's a sound, you know, they built these sets. They're yeah, not every you know, single he, piece of it is right, a creative, right. right? He designed room 237 to have that particular phallic very phallic uh carpet and i'm gonna get back to that in a little bit so keep that in your mind um penises (laughs) (laughs) uh most of the um exterior shots were done in uh i think i mentioned this earlier the timberline lodge in oregon for like the establishing shots and uh i love this little thing i also discovered this recently and it makes total sense now that i know this it i'm like fucking of course the out outtakes from the opening panorama shots of them driving and of you know just of different the stuff aerial views yeah of the aerial views shit. were later used by ridley scott for the closing moments of the original theatrical cut of blade runner aka the shitty happy ending blade runner so wait so those are the scenes at the end of blade runner not are... the scenes the some of the shots of the countryside oh, oh okay, okay okay are essentially outtakes b-roll right like literally from the Shining. From the Shining that they yes. just put over that? Because Ridley Scott was fuck? so done with the studio that he was like, just fucking, I'll just get whatever. Wow. And he, he's probably just like, Stanley, oh give me some God, footage. Please. Something. Like, do you have like a, right. do you have a picture of a mountain that, <laughs> that I can roll for I just a need minutes? like a road and a car. <laughs> we'll just get the same car. Uh, that scene, it, before we dig in mm-hmm. any further, that's, those scenes in particular, those aerial shot scenes mm. from like over the car i don't personally know of much before this that utilizes that so prominently as an introduction yeah um that is massively influential definitely and that's definitely a very kubrick thing i will say yeah i was gonna say it's kind of similar thematically to the way that uh dr strange love opens okay yeah you know like this like the soaring nature of it where like and just you know you just have music playing and flying and movement and credits rolling like it's kind of i feel like it's a similar thing he's done in a a few films maybe even like specifically to the the direct aerial view of the car Mm. going up the road like maybe even just that one specific scene i feel like that is nodded to in countless movies definitely i um also i also really like how the film just begins you yeah, get it the, just rolls you yeah, right in. You get the Warner Brothers logo seen up. Like, Boom, there's no yeah. bullshit. There's no, like, black screen with, with captions first. Like, and yeah, I, nothing. It's so rare to see that in a film. It's just, yeah, like, just, like, opening shot. Right in, Whoa, just go. okay. You know? yeah. And I feel like it fits the mood of the mm-hmm, movie to just, mm-hmm. just start it dry. Right. Right. You know? even, even when that happens in movies, like, where it goes straight into a scene like that, 
it's like a fade in or something like there's right. some sort of segue that opens the film. It doesn't just immediately start with the the seven minute opening shot in, in, in fucking the player. It, it has a little couches that and then yeah. you, you go into that, you know. Um, so this film also made extensive use of the Steadicam. And in fact, the inventor of the Steadicam, Garrett Brown, was heavily involved with the production of The Shining. Um, he toured at first. He toured the sets with uh, Kubrick, and he noticed that it offered further possibilities for the Steadicam, <laughs> and it convinced him to become personally involved with the production. And because he saw that Kubrick was not just talking of stunt shots and staircases, rather he would use the Steadicam as it was intended to be used as a tool which can help get the lens where it's wanted in space and time without the classic limitations of the dolly and crane. So essentially he was able to do a ton of the shit that he did in Barry Lyndon or in other previous films while he was holding or the camera person was holding the camera. Um, there's some great behind the scene footage that I highly suggest everyone watch of Stanley Kubrick shooting Danny running through the maze at the end of the film. And it is basically the footage is someone shooting Stanley running behind the cameraman who's, you know, filming Danny. So it's just Danny like running behind them, like watching it all go down, trying to like keep his eye on the monitor. Stanley thing. is? Yeah. No yeah. fucking it's, way. That's it's awesome. really great. Yep. He, and that's the kind of director he was. Like he was very, very hands-on. In fact, another shout out. I mean, we already covered it and I don't remember because it was a while ago if we mentioned it on that podcast. Uh, in Dr. Strangelove, the scene where um, they uh, are like attacking... The, mil- the military base and there's like soldiers like coming out and like shooting stuff and it's it, it goes from the whole film has been these very like static movement in in the camera yeah. it's not you know and all of a sudden it goes to like hand cam and it feels like you're on the ground with them well stanley was one of the the people who was out there with a camera and they're shooting that like he was like hands-on get my hands dirty get in there yeah. type of director you That's know awesome so, and I, I think that, you know, is the thing that comes out in his films. Definitely. I mean, I didn't know that. I'm mm-hmm. definitely looking forward to watching that yeah. behind the scenes stuff. And it makes sense, too. There's a lot of, like, really iconic close following scenes in that. Like, mm. like Danny riding the three-wheeler around the yep. hotel. Yep. I feel like without a steady cam like that, you couldn't really do a scene like that justice. Right. Or you could, I mean, you could with, like, a rolling cam, but it would just be... Well, just it, it's again like the limitations of yeah mo- maneuvering that right. Sort of yeah, thing, it's cool to know? see like a, watching movies from this era is nice to right. see like a live timeline well, you, of the technology evolving and what's capable of being mm-hmm. shot is now well, possible. Like, in the case of those shots you referenced, most likely, like most of those shots, just like in you know the one I was talking about earlier in the uh, in the, the hedge maze. That was literally a cameraman running behind Danny. Right. As yeah, he, you know exactly, what I mean? And, but you, know? you get this amazingly steady shot. Yeah, it's That gorgeous. also has a bit of like, it's not always level, but it's always steady. And yeah. like, it's very, it it just really helps uh, create the aesthetic. I think that he was going totally, for the unnerving totally. aesthetic. Um, but this film also won some awards. Oh, yeah, yes. it did. It won fucking Razzie Awards. Yeah, like, I was shitting me? really surprised to find this out. And it just goes back to what we were saying in the last episode about how Hollywood is so up its own ass that they they'll give Crash a fucking best uh you know, best picture, but 
then they gave I guess I kind of get at the time why they might have given Shelley Duvall because she yeah. got worst actress okay did she win it she won worst actor no she was nominated okay, I'm sorry cool, she cool. nominated Neither of it did not win either of these awards. I right, should mention. Right. Yes, it was just nominated, but which is bad enough. Right. So it was worst actress for Shelley Long, and then worst director for Stanley. Um, it's fucked. But it's like I think I like I immediately call bullshit on both of those. First of all, I, I think it goes without saying that this is a very well directed film. Okay. Yeah, you don't need to be fucking contesting that. But <laughs> I can kids. understand. And I have heard, rather, I guess I should say, because I don't, I don't like people's qualms with Shelley Long. Shelley Long is fucking perfect in this movie. Shelley for, oh my god, I always do <laughs> I that. Know, I know. That. I always do that. <laughs> I'm watching too much Frasier. Dude, yes, seriously. Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name. God damn, Shelley Duvall. Sorry, rest in peace, Shelley. I love you. Hi, I'm Shelley Duvall. <laughs> She is so perfect for the character that she needs to be. And Stanley essentially terrorized a performance out of her that I think is really real. And that's why people kind of like laugh at it. She is like terrified, it feels like in that movie. There's particular scenes, really the one where she's holding the bat, feebly swinging it at Jack before she eventually does knock him out. There's a couple of moments in there where it feels like she is drenched in water. She is oh, like yeah. so just sweating and crying. And like I've heard in like even in rehearsals, um, I forget his name off the top of my head, but the guy, he was also, he played Tyrell in Blade Runner actually. Okay. Who plays the bartender, Lloyd. Oh, yeah. They yeah, were yeah, yeah. during rehearsals, they rehearsed from 9 a.m. to 10.40 p.m. And he was just drenched in sweat for like most of the time they were rehearsing. Like almost all day, yeah. Jesus that's, Christ, it's insane. Like how, but but that's that's why you get these unhinged. Re, the, the yeah, she looks really like genuinely. Yeah, she really looks that way. Jack is really getting pale. Like, oh you yeah, know what I totally, mean. Like yeah. shit, shit is like actually happening to them. And again, there's a whole debate you can get onto that of whether or not that was okay. I think that definitely Kubrick crossed the line. When it came to the way he treated Shelley in particular, she got the brunt of his uh, criticism. And there's even some people that say that he actually mimicked Jack Torrance's like personality. Wow, in or, yeah, in order and to just like picked, scare just that picked on her. out of yeah. her. Wow. He just picked on her and picked on her. And but like when I see video, like behind the scene videos. A lot of them are them just like they are arguing about what they think they should do. And there's one that I, I was watching today where Stanley's just like, Shelly, every time he does something emphatic, you can't jump. You just you can't jump, Shelly. And she's like, well, I think and he's like, no, Shelly, I'm telling you, it doesn't look right over here. And I'm watching that. and I'm kind of like, you know, I get it. An actor wants to act the way they want to act and they have a certain and they, they think they know. But like. The director asks you for something. And when the director asks you for something and you deliver something and then they go, no, that's not what I wanted. You don't go, well, you're wrong, yeah, director. Like, yeah, you know? take it easy. You know? so, like, you're expendable. Again, I wasn't there. I'm not her. So I'll take her word for it. And from what I heard from other people. And like also, like Nicholson had quite a, a fraught relationship with making of the film. Like they 
were constantly giving them new scripts and new pages every day. And there's like a scene in that scene behind the scenes where he's like, I don't even look at my script anymore. I just look at the pages they give me. And like Stanley's sitting right there and he's kind of like, yeah. And like, then it cuts and it's them. It's, it's a scene of, or a shot, I guess you could say. I mean, again, it's a documentary of, uh, of Jack Nicholson just sitting at a table, like, like kind of like head in his hands, sort of, you know, just like lying out, like, (laughs) and, and then like sitting up and like, like holding his head and shit. And across from him is Stanley just, Oh a my typewriter God. looking at a notebook like, <laughs> typing away and it's just printing a new yeah, script page yeah. for him yeah so again like i don't even know how much of that was just him attempting to make them feel as claustrophobic as the characters were supposed to feel right to coax the exact performance he wanted and again whether or not that is okay or not i kind of err on the side it's not okay you know, yeah. like I, it, cause to me, it falls in the same, it falls in line with like stuff like, you know, Uma Thurman being asked to do a dangerous stunt in Kill Bill and getting hurt, you know, and then not getting backed up by the studio or by Quentin. Right. Yeah, it feels yeah, yeah. like that's like you guys are responsible for treating your actors and your crew with care. Definitely. You know, definitely. so a director who terrifies and terrorizes his actors, that's not really an okay. Yeah, thing. like if someone wants to method act and do something yeah. to like certainly affect their, their way of life and their quality of life on and offset. But when it affects other ahead. people. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. If you want to do that, you want to method act, do your thing. That's cool. Like I have a lot of respect for a lot of people to do that. But like from a director, you can't like nah. torture yeah. <laughs> like borderline like mentally torture your cast you no know? because in well, yeah you you can we should well yeah right yeah <laughs> i guess like i guess you can and it's like Definitely. clearly like people aren't gonna leave the project if you do but like i prefer yeah i'd prefer you don't as so a, as a i um i think there's multiple lenses you can view this film from totally um the most, I mean, famously, there's a documentary. Uh, yeah, is it Room Two Thirty Seven? Yep, yeah, that highlights the uh, the living hotel idea, which it's kind of presented like it's a theory. But I'm like, no, that's just kind of like I thought that everybody knew that when they watched the movie. I didn't know that was like a big secret that right. like uh, stuff moves around. Like for instance, there, there's a lot of really great examples. Like there's um, in the scene where uh, like one of the first scenes where Wendy comes in when Jack's writing and he's like, it's he's first starts to turn sour, but not when he like freaks out or it's when he's like, get the fuck out of here. You know, there's a shot of Jack and behind him against the wall, there's a table and a chair. And then the next, it cuts to to Shelly and then it cuts back to Jack. They're gone. Cuts back to Shelly, cuts back to Jack. They're there again. The carpet famously, tennis ball comes rolling up to Danny and the carpet is one way and then Stanley moved all the toy trucks around and shot Danny from the other side so now the, it feels like the carpet has changed direction or perhaps yeah. the whole room has flipped but Danny hasn't changed there's a lot of stuff like that and uh, like there's uh, pictures that move like paintings right, yeah, on paintings, the wall yeah. all this sort of stuff and just in general there's it has this feel like in the, I think this was recreated in uh, Hereditary, um, where they, which was also shot on a soundstage in, in like a set house. It never, it feels like the outside of the Overlook and the inside don't match. Like 
where is the room for this ballroom and this giant room that Jack uh, writes in in the building that you see? Yeah, right. You Definitely, know? dude. The ballroom's right? huge. It seems where, like they're constantly running down like crazy yep. hallways. The staircases. Like, yeah, like where are all those staircases yeah. in this building that's like kind of triangular in in dude, very lodge like? Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Um, Stuart Ullman's office, which has, like, feels like it should be surrounded by building, yet has light outside from where, you know? Yeah. Like, just, there's, and, and uh, I think my favorite one, which a lot of people never notice, but I think is real obvious, um, when Dick shows them the freezer, right? If you just look at the table right next to him, there's, like, a table outside before they go through the door, and there's, like... Like it looks like like you know containers for creamer, whatever like metal containers and some plates on that table, right? And I say that because you're gonna see that table again in a sec. So he opens the door and he's like, "Look, we got lamb, we got all this stuff. You'll never have eh, the same meal twice. Eh, isn't that great? Yeah, ha ha ha." And they close the door, and they're coming out of a different door because as they walk away, you see that the door they opened is on the other side, and that table is right there. They're coming out of a door on the left side, but they entered a door on the right side. Really? But they didn't go into the... Like, it's the same door from the shot. He opens a door, they stand there for a second, and they go right back out. But it's a different door that they come out of. Damn, I'm going to have to rewatch yeah. that part. Because I know the door... It's the same type of door that's in mm -hmm. the dry storage room. Right. Like, that she ends up locking Jackie and in it's, later. it's on the same wall that the dry storage... Like, because there's the door to the dry storage room, right? And then there's and then there's a hallway. There's two more refrigerator doors there, and then across the hall there's two refrigerator doors. So he goes into the doors door on the right. And like I said, there's a table right next to it, right? Yeah. Then he comes out of the door, the second door on the left, and they walk right past that table. So if you're watching, you can see the same table with no all shit. the same shit on it, on in a different place. Damn. Yeah, because. Again, just messing with the idea. Perspective. And Perspective what, yeah. and even time. Think about it like this, all right? The very beginning of the film, you're given a date. And so you know what, what time is, right? Time is... The whole movie's built around well, time. What day, did they, what day did they move in? What was the day that they arrived and that, and, and that they actually were there alone for the first time. Think about it. Our season here runs from uh, May 15th to October 30th. Stuart Ullman told them that they went from May something to October 30th is when the season ended. So technically, as far as I could tell, that means that October 31st was the first day, Halloween was the first day that they were there alone. Oh, shit. Right? That's the same day, or so actually October 30th is the day that Halloran and Danny have ice cream and talk about The Shining, okay? And Halloran says, you know, Danny's like, what's up with room 237? And he's like, don't ever go in yeah, there. Yeah, he's like, you have don't no go in that in room. There, yeah. One month later. So now you have a very, okay, so now it's November, uh, sorry, um, yeah, November 30th, okay? Yeah. We have a very distinct idea of what day it is when Danny <clears throat> is in the hallway again. In, in, I'm sorry, not in the hallway again. It's when, you know, we see them again. Yeah, right? right, right. Then we get a bunch of days 
Yeah, they go like Tuesday. Yep. Like. Indiscernible from where those days lie in relation to that, that November that date one that we month know away. of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then, after those a bunch of days, we get nothing for a significant period of the film until the last day when we get 8 a.m. So he's fucking with your time. When did Christmas happen? Did Christmas happen? Is it December? Is it January? February? What yeah, fucking... Yeah, you don't know, d- like, where you yep. are. You, you have how long it took You have to lost like... all conception of time, just like you are suffering from cabin fever, just like they are. Right, right. You don't remember how many days it's been, you know? Yeah, which it's is crazy. brilliant, brilliant way of using title cards in a very interesting way. Yeah, being very <clears throat> bland and vague mm-hmm. with them to really, like, put you in a spot where you don't... You, you right. think you know what's happening, but then when you break it down, because, like, the way time's passing and seasons are changing... Right. Like, how could this be... I don't know. What do you think about uh, the significance of mirrors and not just mirrors, but mirroring? Like, so... Mirrors, I thought, were wildly significant for mainly specifically Jack. Like, it does come into a play for the other characters. Well, yeah, because, like, mostly for Jack. Jack only seems to communicate with a ghost in the presence of or through a mirror. Yeah, and I feel like the mirror is used sort of to uh, Stanley's advantage, obviously, to, like, Give uh give the audience a spot to see that there's nothing there, and then pan to the mirror where right. Jack's hallucinations are. Well, I also feel you like know? it um yeah it adds to this idea of madness. Like he's not talking to Grady; he's talking to his reflection. Right? Know? Yeah, exactly. Like the bar um, the bar scene specifically, the right. first bar scene when he walks down there, and he's like, yep. "I do anything for a drink," and then he like turns and he's like talking to himself for a couple seconds, right. and, and then, then Lloyd pops right. up. Now that also brings me to another thing, because um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna talk more about mirrors too, but it also brings me to the significance of the word always, um, which there's like a bunch. It it's just something that popped into my head the other day. Like there's obvious indications, like um, or usages of always, like when he says, uh, "You've always been here. I've uh, you've, you've always, always been, been the, the caretaker. caretaker yeah. I've oh I should know. I've always been here, right?" Or when he says, "I I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. Yeah. You were always the best bartender." Like, and it made me want to watch back and look for any other instance when Would someone said that. Would someone use that word? If there were any other, you know. Yeah. But um, so like that kind of also goes back to like the mirror idea of like there being two Jacks and there being two Grady's. So like, for instance, Ullman says, Oh yeah, this guy, uh, Charles Grady. Yeah. He killed his, his family. And, uh, yeah, two, you know, his two daughters, eight, they were like eight and 10 or something. Yet for some reason, either the daughters are twins or they look so similar, they appear as twins, or possibly their manifestations. Danny's creating from a story he heard, and he visualizes them as twins because he never heard they were eight and ten or whatever. Right. But um, I think that it's significant because you're getting all these mirror images of people, of things, of events. Um, one great usage of the mirror is something I never noticed. And, uh, this was pointed out from a great video. I watched this guy, uh, Rob Ager, uh, co- collative learning. I believe his videos are called. He's awesome. 
I normally don't watch his videos for the podcast because I don't want to steal any of his ideas. So that's why I'm shouting him out for this because um, he he's the one who turned me on to this. When Jack first goes into the gold room and he's walking down the hallway, you know, yeah. how he's like, and he's doing these like hand motions. Yeah. Watch that again because notice that every time he does one, he's walking by a mirror. Like he's trying, like there's m- mirrors along, you know, it's like mirror space mirror space and every time he walks by a mirror he does some sort of like aggressive hand motion almost like he's like blocking out his own reflection so where are you going with that like just the the he's trying it's like part of him being like no i'm not list like i'm holy not holy shit oh like so fighting like the mirror it or jack yeah is like or, another character that is trying to take him down and possibly or he's trying to forget something he has guilt towards something that he's done and that could possibly obviously be hurting Danny or it could be that he's his his anger is taking him over and there's a part of him that knows or something like that I think there's but just the significance of each one of those mirrors being made important in a way that you yeah. won't notice unless you're looking for it you know like I didn't ever think about that I've watched that's one of like the 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 images from or, or see little like you know segments from the film that i remember the most him walking down that hallway yeah. just of how like aggressive he is but to watch it back and be like holy fuck every time he moves he's walking past one of the mirrors in that hallway like that changes now how i view and i don't really know exactly what the significance is but i know that there's something there's there be, yeah. it's a choice he told you don't just do that you know it's yeah. not that's too too, too coincidental, coincidental. yeah, yeah. Like way, way too falling mm-hmm. into place that makes um, sense there's also stuff like in some sequences there's a question of whether or not there are ghost presents present um like when in like we said when jack sees ghosts he's always facing a mirror every time yeah. like when he you know is with grady grady is literally almost is standing as the reflection yeah, yeah. And I mean that that also with the uh, yeah the bathroom mirror with uh, the the ghost woman yeah but then even when he speaks to Grady through the refrigerator door that's a reflective surface he's still looking into his own reflection true when he speaks to the ghosts however I think that and I've read that in it the Grady unlocking the door scene is supposed to be like the okay there is something this is the you know it yes there is something supernatural going on moment you know the key scene or whatever you're like yes the ghosts are real yeah. the whole rest of the time it's supposed to be ambiguous but now no they are a real thing i still have a theory about that but we'll get back to that i swear oh, jesus there's a lot of uh doubling and mirroring effects in the film um, so in the U.S. version, uh, Jack's interview with Ullman, who confident, whose confident affability contrasts with Jack's seemingly forced nonchalance, is paired with Wendy's meeting with the female doctor, whose somber and professional manner contrasts with Wendy's nervousness. Okay. All right. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, also, during the interview that Jack had, uh, Jack and Ullman are joined by a hotel employee named Bill Watson, who looks similar to Jack from behind, creating a pseudo mirror image effect when they're sitting in the chairs, like next to each other. Right. 
Um, as I said before, the Grady sisters, who appear to be twins, but also on two occasions, Ullman says goodbye to two young female employees, and uh, in the second case, they very closely resemble each other. That's a very small one, but it, I did go back and saw that, and I was like, okay, okay. Damn. All right, yeah, see, any with a movie like this, any tiny little tidbit that you can take could be yes. a reflection on something that's just how like deep exactly. deep diving this movie's worth skip this next one for a sec we'll yeah come, we'll do we're that. gonna finish with this one um <laughs> uh two versions of the bathing woman inhabit room right. three uh 237 yeah sexy yeah. and not so sexy <laughs> and like dead yeah like rotting you know, yeah like literally <laughs> um, rotting that's one of the funniest yeah. like pivots yeah is that like when he looks in the mirror and realizes that he's just like making out with like yeah. a rotting corpse. <laughs> exactly. That's like a great little pivot. Um, and my favorite, personally, uh, in Halloran's Miami bedroom, his two paintings of similar nude black women uh, seen on opposite walls as he experiences The Shining. That one, I I always wanted to know what the deeper significance of that was. Because again, like nothing he does as a director had ever been something that wasn't on purpose. Yeah. And again, I'm going to get back to that in a sec here, but uh, it just felt very purposeful for him to have those two photos. And also like Halloran in general, when you kind of dig deeper into that character and you think about it, he's like this, this lone, very lonely man, yet he has this ability to see in the future. So like, is that why he's alone? Like, because he can't get close to people because he knows what's going to happen. Right. He shines so hard. Or something. But, like, he's also still, like, you know, has sexual desires, obviously, and shit like that. But, like, it just felt very strange. Like, it seemed like, what? Where's, like, he's not, like, married or have a girlfriend or boyfriend or anything. Like, it seemed (laughs) like he was very, very tied into the hotel, obviously. I mean, that just seems to be, like, his main, like, prerogative. Yeah, I think he's, like, like, a protector character. Yeah, and it was definitely stronger driven with it being a child. Like, with Danny being Mm -hmm. present in that situation, Mm -hmm. I don't think, like, Dick would have been as useful as a character. I also wonder if he's, like, that's, you know, he's, because of The Shining, he was drawn there. And, like, like, you know, because he's an adult, he he's able to avoid the dangers of the hotel and obviously when it's populated it's it's much different because the ghosts like you know can't really operate when there's lots and lots of people around it just doesn't work and so like they probably you know disappear or hide away more yeah they take the season off right exactly <laughs> um, that's i mean that's basically what they set you up for and he outlines that in their interview where exactly. he's like hey like this bad shit happened here and you're gonna mm-hmm. be alone here for a very long time yep maybe something weird might happen like are you okay with that yep. and jack's like yep I'm okay with that. I just really want to be alone. Yeah, they were a bunch of settlers who uh, <laughs> ate each other, son. Yeah, he just right off the bat, he's like, <sighs> he's like, that's called cannibalism. Yeah, he's like, come on, I'm the Joker, baby. Well, I'm the Joker, baby. <laughs> I was like, holy fuck, man, will you chill the fuck out? This little last kid. Um, oh, that's a, another mirror I thought about uh, when I was thinking about this earlier. Their haircuts, Danny and, and uh, I mean, it's kind of a joke, but it's actually kind of true, too. They both have similar hairstyles, Danny and Jack. Yeah, true. Jack's an old man, withered, yeah, balding and so, one. And Danny's sort of a weird little, and actually, 
in Doctor Sleep, which is the novel sequel that came out in like 2013 to The Shining um, by Stephen King, he, Danny, becomes a less dangerous version of his father. He also, when he grows up, suffers from alcoholism and, and anger issues. So, like, he is kind of a mirror image of Jack. Yeah. Even, even, uh, Stephen King realized that. I think a movie version of that is coming out in November. Yep, yep. I know. Uh, Ewan, uh, Ewan McGregor. Yeah, I know my buddy Matt is uh, really looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I'll watch it. Just talk to the kid. You're magic, like me. I need you to listen to me. The world's a hungry place. A dark place. Hi there. I only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid, I bumped into these things. I don't know about magic. I... I always called it The Shining. I'm, I kind of feel like now, I, the trailer now I feel day. like, yeah, but I feel like I should read the book or at least watch the miniseries first. Just like I, I have no connection other than reading the synopsis to, to King's novel. Yeah. So like it, I have a different experience with it. If I watch Dr. Sleep and it'd be like, okay, yeah, like I know I read what happened, but I don't have the same connection to it. Yeah. I'm going to assume that Dr. Sleep is going to be more true to the novel than The Shining yeah, was. Yeah. That seems to be what I'm gathering from what I've watched. Right. But there uh, there also appear to be two Jack Torrances, um, the one who went mad in First Death and the one in the picture from 1921, as well as the mazes. Yeah, I mean, the picture is its own whole... Mm. That's its own whole thing. You well, know? yeah, we can... There's. We'll get to that in a second. But with the mazes... Uh, there's two mazes in the movie, uh, one of which is the hedges outside that you like famously see uh, Danny running away from Jack when he's going completely postal outside mm-hmm. of the thing, limping yep. around trying to kill him. Um, and per Wendy's characterization, the Overlook Hotel itself. Yes. Uh, the hedges maze appears in two forms. It's like a thirteen so, yeah. foot high fucking a, version. A mirror within a mirror. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah, forgot about the whole. Because <laughs> you have a mini maze. version. Yeah, yeah, the maze on the table in the yep. fucking hotel. But uh, there's the one outside and the model inside the overlook. And in addition, uh, in the overhead shot zooming down on Wendy and Danny as they're uh, the when they go on their little fucking day trip yeah. out in the snow and they get to the center of the maze and like, Oh my God, we made it. Uh, <laughs> they get to the center of the maze. Uh, the maze is different yes. from the map, uh, outside and from the model, not only in having way more like obstacles and like corridors and stuff, but also, uh, that the left and the right sides are mirror images of each other. Uh, and the overlook, uh, it significantly breaks down into two sections. Yep. One old and one remodeled. Yep. Past, present, old, new. Exactly. Pretty clear cut. Exactly. There's also a lot of... um, Now, I have my own personal theory that I came up with about this. I haven't heard anybody else mention. 
And oh shit, hot yeah, take incoming. This is hot take incoming. And it has something to do with um one of the theories that people have talked about, which is the Native American theory. Uh that there this film has a uh, underlying theme or is maybe possibly all about uh the genocide of Native American tribes by white people. Yes, Dylan, you have your no, hand. No, I'm not raising my oh. hand. I'm like kinda like oh, Oh, yes. yeah, sorry. Um, you know, mainly, mainly because of all of the uh, Native American iconography in the hotel, um, the uh, rivers of blood, the the uh, Halloran being the only character who dies in the film, being a stand-in for the Native American peoples. Uh, one of my favorites is that during the scene where... Uh, Grady is instructing Jack of what he needs to do. He needs to correct his family in the bathroom. You can hear faintly a song playing from the gold room outside, and that song is called uh, It's All Forgotten Now, which is a little shout-out to how people think about the Native American genocide. It was all forgotten Jesus. then. Yeah. Um, but I actually have a different theory, and I think that it, it coincides... It's about more, though, than just the Native American genocide. It also is about slavery and about uh, really about white the white man's burden, as Jack says in 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 the in the movie to Lloyd, um, and specifically the idea that white people believe that they like or that a white person who believes that they should be in a position of power over everyone else and so like the fact that Halloran is this lonely black man he's one of the few good people in the story he's unceremoniously murdered he's the only person who we see get murdered in the film and on top of all that he is killed by a white man who is in, in in a sense standing in for all of you know white genocide of other peoples right and this even breaks down into the way that the overlook hotel always kind of reminded me of the titanic from titanic the way that it looks on the interior and the way that even though you're inside of a building, and hotels have this feeling in general, you're inside of a building, but it feels like windowless, like you're in a ship. Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I totally agree with the interior yep. design as the Titanic. Wendy even calls it a ghost ship. Yeah. <laughs> she, literally she literally says, says that. Those it's a ghost. Words. It's like yeah. a ghost ship, yeah. And so I feel like there's a bit of, in like, Kubrick also liked to work in themes about the Holocaust as well. And uh, it's famously like he always wanted to make a Holocaust movie, but he could never like find the right way to do it. So he worked in themes about all this different stuff into his films, regardless of whether or not he wanted it to be like some major statement. I think it was more about creating... The th you know showing off of in and in creating the themes and the feeling that he wanted with those themes, right? But like, if it always felt very interesting to me that the the whole idea of the, like being stuck on this sort of slave ship, ghost ship, pirate ship sort of 
feeling to the film, but also kind of, like I said, like being feeling like you're on the Titanic while it's sinking. You're in the bowels of this ship and you can never escape and you're just sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. You're watching it it happen right in front of you. Yeah. But that's not the only thing we can say about this. Um, So to kind of get, oh yeah, that's the other thing I want to talk about. My bad. Always. Um, We did talk about it a little bit. We did talk about it a little bit, but I want to talk about uh, the, don't scroll too far down, Dylan. (laughs) I don't want to, uh, I want to talk about a little bit about, you were talking about earlier about um, the photograph that we see at the yeah, end. Of the yeah, 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 where Jack is right in the front and it's the picture mm-hmm. was it 1920? Yeah, July like, 4th, 1921. Yeah, right. And, and it's, he's uh, right in the front and center of a big mm-hmm. ball party, mm-hmm. similar to the one that he is seeing when he's down in the bar, when there's like the right. huge huge party and he goes to the bathroom and that's mm-hmm. when he gets told he needs to correct his family. That I've always heard also though um July 4th as presented in in this again going with this native american theme uh as that would be a you know it's a bad day you know july 4th is not a day for the native peoples to celebrate no so like that's another thing that kind of wraps it into this theme of like he has joined a group of of people so like maybe so like it's almost like they're like racist ghosts I mean, they are like Grady literally drops the N bomb. Yeah. And then it's almost like Jack. I totally for I, every time I fucking watch this movie, yep. I forget about that. And I'm like, whoa. It's, but then it's almost like Jack like recedes back into uh, the time frame. Like he literally for a second turns into 1921 caretaker Jack and he's like uh, bleep. And it's just like, whoa, OK. Like because you've never seen him present. Like he's there's never like, like it would have made more sense that he was like to present him as a racist if like when Halloran was like oh I'm gonna give your son chocolate ice cream he would have been like no yeah, get away right, from my son you know right right he's right. never there present- were plenty of opportunities right, before right. so it just feels really out of character for him to do that almost like he's trying to like you know again a white person trying to uh, like associate with or like uh, relate to another white person without anyone else of any other race in there like there's this very yeah. weird undertone to the, to that particular moment yeah it, even to me this time i was like oh yeah i forgot about that too when i was right i was like oh yeah i forgot damn yeah um, seriously I, every time i see that i'm like Poof. in in that also i think again kind of leads into this idea of like slavery slash native americans slash displaced peoples in general versus like white establishment america and and uh the dark dark past you know they talk he talk dick talks about like oh these like the you know when something happens it leaves you know residue like when you burn toast you know it leaves something right on the yeah, world. yeah yeah Yep. So like it, you're seeing lots of stuff from American America's history. You know, not just the Indian burial ground stuff, but other things as well. Yep, for sure. Um, uh, you brought up something the other day about um, what did you say exactly? Jack, does he shine? Yeah. You think he shines? Yes. I don't. 
I know you don't, <laughs> but I think I have sound reasoning for it. Okay, yeah, let's um, hear it. So the the there's a couple reasons why I think Jack shines. Uh, first of all, there is a musical cue that plays when Danny or uh, Dick or Jack or Wendy is shining. So this can be interpreted obviously as like uh that I've heard people interpret it as like Danny's shine. I think I mentioned this maybe in the in the part one. Danny's shine affects Wendy and affects Jack. It first affects Jack and then as Wendy finally begins to realize like what's happening, she starts to finally see ghosts, right? I think that's a that's a good interpretation. Like I have no problem with that. But I think it's more than that because the reason why it takes so long for Wendy to come around and begin to see is because she doesn't have the shine. You know? Okay, yeah. So the second reason I think it is is because of something Halloran says. Um and it's very simple and I just think it just makes a connection. Oh, me and my grandmother had it and we could talk. So it's something that can be passed down. Assumedly. You can it, he must have gotten it from his grandmother. I guess. You know, he didn't just I don't know <laughs> how you get the shine. Right. I would yeah, assume yeah, from yeah. that she taught him how to use it, all this shit. I think Jack has the shine. Okay. Yeah. He so. has now grown up and lost the ability. The other reason that I think this is true is because in Dr. Sleep, Danny also has begun to, when he follows his father's path, like I said, and becomes alcoholic and has anger issues, he also begins to lose that ability. And part of that novel is him like regaining it and regaining his you know life in all aspects. Right. So, I think that it's definitely something that that King believed too. That like it was something that Jack had an ability to have, but he had like discarded that. He had like turned his back on his, you know, ability to do that. He had shut it out. Whatever, you know what I mean. He acted like everything was fine, and and that would make sense because the whole time Jack Nicholson feels like quote unquote a crazy person pretending to not be crazy the yeah. whole time. So like. He has this undercurrent of something going on that he's not letting anybody know. And we don't, we barely get to see it. Yeah. And it, I feel like it definitely, if you think about it that way, it makes a little bit more sense why his fuse is so shortened mm -hmm. at a lot of parts yep. and the isolation is hitting him like yep. very hard, very fast. Um, When uh, he shines, he goes into trances. When Danny shines, he goes into trances. You know, you see Jack going into trances several times in the movie. Yeah. Even just even in the scene where where Danny comes in and is he's been attacked and and and, uh, you know, Shelly runs over to him. She looks over at Jack and he's like just trance. Yeah. You know? well, yeah. It's like totally. So because cool. that's when he just woke up from when he said he had the dream that he tried to kill them. Did he have a dream, Dylan, or did he shine and see the future? Who knows? Well, he's, didn't he say he killed? He said he killed them. Though. Yeah, but like I said before, the shine. Remember? But he wouldn't be seeing the future because he said. But the he shine said he saw, doesn't necessarily. It's things that could be and things that are. Okay. It doesn't necessarily. <laughs> it's it's like, 
It's like you can see possible futures. And maybe what he saw was him chasing them or trying to kill them. But I really killed him with an axe. Yes, but like that doesn't. It's too (laughs) ambiguous, though. It's too ambiguous. You don't, as the viewer, you don't don't get to see it. You don't see his. You don't see his visions. You don't even know if he's telling the truth because what if he did something even worse? Right. Yeah. Maybe. Who knows? What if he did something way worse to Danny? How would you feel if I was about to change the whole way you're going to see this film like I've been teasing since the beginning of part one? Oh, I scrolled down. I yeah, you already I'm saw like it. it. Um, I don't think I'm going to like so it. So there's an undercurrent in this film uh, that we talked about. In Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick had used this in several of his films, and we talked about it in Barry Lyndon, um, and it is pedophilia. And this one in particular is sexual abuse of a parent of a child. And I, again, this is from Rob Ager, who I mentioned earlier. And so this is his theory, but I cannot, and I hope I am not ruining the film for you. Again, I should mention trigger warnings. I'm not going to get into detail about it, but I am going to be talking a little bit about abuse. Because that, I think, is maybe what this film is about. Um, The Bear Costumed Man. So, at the end of the film, or very near to the end of the film, uh, when Wendy is running through the halls, she sees a man in a bear costume giving a blowjob to a guy in, like, a tuxedo. And that's about all you get. She sees it, registers what's going on, they look at her, and then she runs away. That's the second ghost that she has seen. Okay, and that's important to note, but I'll get back to that in a sec. So the bear is featured throughout this film in different places. Uh, Actually, most notably, the first time you see the bear is right behind Danny when he's lying in his bed. There's this, like, bear uh, stuffed animal type thing, right? Um, And it's directly behind Danny, like looming over him, looming over his shoulder. It has eyes that are cut to look just like the dials above the elevators, like the floor things above the elevators. And its mouth is gaping and red and open, just like the elevator doors. And later on in the film, when they get to the place, uh, they're uh, showing um, Jack and Wendy the room. They go in, and Jack immediately looks into Danny's bedroom, right? If you look really hard there, there's a painting or a photograph on the wall of two bears. One is standing, one is sitting. In Jack and Wendy's bedroom, there's a picture of two naked children on the wall. Again, just like Barry Lyndon. One is standing, one is sitting. And it's like... I've said it a couple times tonight. Stanley doesn't put stuff in the background just because it looks good or just because it's going to be in the background. Right. These were yeah, chosen, reason, you know? Yeah. yeah. But it goes on from there. Um, when you... There's a scene where Ullman and and Bill come over to get Jack, and Jack is reading a magazine, right? He's, like, sitting down in a chair reading a magazine, and then he just takes the magazine and puts it down. Now, most of the time, you wouldn't even register, like, what that was. But you can actually see the cover if you pause the film. It's Playgirl. He's reading a Playgirl, or looking at a Playgirl, I should say. Which, if you don't know what that is, it's 
Playboy for girls. So it's, you know, naked men. And on the cover of that issue of Playgirl, which is a real issue of Playgirl, one of the articles is incest. Why parents sleep with their children. But it doesn't even stop there because once you start to look deeper into this theory, it gets really crazy. The first time you see the bear man, he's framed in the doorway the exact same way that Danny is the first time you see Danny at the very beginning of the film when he's in the bathroom brushing his teeth. He's leaned over and his face is out of frame, you know, inside of the doorway, just like the bear man. Um, when Danny comes back with his injuries, which now this theory basically posits that room 237 is where the abuse happens and Jack goes back and relives what happened in the room. Um, rather than the, the woman doesn't exist. The woman is Danny manifests it or lies or makes it up to cover for what actually happened and jack goes and sees it as it's he's seeing what he did and having to you know face what he did again right so when danny comes back he's sucking his thumb like how much more fucking obvious can you get stanley like it's just again i cannot watch this film i cannot now watch this film without seeing it all over the place when the doctor asks him does Tony tell you to do things? That has a totally new meaning for me now. Tons of lines have a totally new meaning. Jack talking about, he did this to himself. He hurt himself. Like, totally different. Totally different. Holy shit. Even down to when Jack, when, when Danny comes and sees Jack alone in the room, Jack mimics essentially the same hand movements as the woman in the tub. He brings his arm out and then brings it back just like she does as she opens the curtain. All right, that might be a stretch. But how about an even better <laughs> one? Coming back to the whole bear man thing, Wendy is confronted with it as if she is finally accepting what she knew all along. She didn't want to believe that her husband had done such a thing. That is her acceptance of it. The Seeing f- the bear man. Yes, because the first ghost she saw was a two-faced man. It's a guy with like stitches across his face. Oh yeah, right? yeah, 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 almost yeah, yeah. like I he's been about that. like pieced together. Yep, yep. She sees the two-faced man. Great party, isn't it? That's Jack, and she still hasn't seen him for who he is. Now she sees him for who he is. Whoa! I am sorry if I just ruined all of your nights. Yeah, whoa! <laughs> and, that's a big pill yeah. to fucking swallow right there. Send I mean, all it's complaints not like, to yeah, Rob Ager. Yeah, <laughs> if you got a problem with that? He's got a YouTube channel. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> um, great. I think he really is. He's really good, and I want to give him a big I shout out because I, I, I really appreciate um, deep dives and stuff like that, and especially like as much of a reach as it may sound like, it's not a director that is. Um, unfamiliar with doing things right. like that. So there, you know, there really, really, really could be some realism well, to that. And even if it's just the underlying, like almost subconscious nods towards something to cr- create even more that feeling of unsettling, yeah. just un- inert, unnerving feeling that you get from the film. 
Um, cause like, again, like what, seeing Danny suck his thumb has, I mean, it's, it's just, it really, you know, I mean, I don't want, like, I'm not going to explain it. You know what I'm, what I'm yeah. thinking when I'm saying that, like, mm-hmm. it just doesn't, it doesn't feel the same when you think about it in a different context like that. And Kubrick had left plenty of clues along the way. Uh, in fact, one of the, one of the creepiest moments of this whole movie is a moment that I literally almost, I I feel like I've never noticed it before until I watched it recently. Um, after when, when Jack finally really loses it at, at Wendy for the first time, right? It's after, you know, Danny has been injured, quote unquote. And, uh, they, he has, um, come back from the, from room 237 and he's like nothing's there whatever and they're sitting there talking and then he's like finally he's like you're not gonna fuck we're not leaving you're not gonna fuck this up for me and shit and he storms out as he's walking out he casts this look like it's literally probably the most horrific look i've ever seen from jack nicholson maybe from anyone just this horrifying look and he cast it directly into the camera but more importantly it's like at Danny. It's at Danny's room. Yeah. yeah. Oh, His bedroom. When he enters room 237, right? And the, it's, you know, a steady cam shot of what you assume to be, you know, Jack's eye view. Yeah. Again, this room with the super phallic, <laughs> uh, like purple, as I mentioned like earlier, purple, river, like, yeah. yeah, you know, on the ground. The camera comes into the room, comes up those stairs, and then immediately just turns and focuses on the bed. Like, the clues are there everywhere that something more nefarious happened between Jack and Danny. And that, I think, is what makes it so unsettling. You couldn't even put that into words why you felt that way, but it was there. It's all over the place. He's like, it's in your face. It's like I said with the, when we were talking about Barry Lyndon. It's the same thing in Barry Lyndon. It when you watch that back, it's a much it's one small character as opposed to the you know one of the main characters. So it's a much smaller smaller thing. But like he's making it pretty clear that this this old guy is got some sort of proclivity that is not okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, but you don't really think about it on first viewing because it's not right on the face. But you yeah. do know there's something like off. You know, and I, I think it's definitely one way to look at the film. I'm not, I just, I like the theory. I mean, I guess I don't, I don't like the right, theory. You no, know what I mean? That's not what like I'm what saying it's, before. It's content. Like, I respect the, I respect the dive into it and potentially pinning like a deeper meaning on something that might not be touched on, especially with a director that is mm-hmm. known for doing something like mm-hmm. that. Like, it's not like. It's not like this guy is just pulling this theory out of his ass and just wants to tag like some negative connotation to it. Like this is something that like Kubrick's done. Oh yeah. And it's like it's not like it wouldn't be out of the norm for that to be the case. Well, so dude, I like I appreciate the, oh, the dive, you know. Think about this too. Jack is throwing the tennis ball. Right? You see him throwing the tennis ball against mm-hmm. the wall. And obviously that also plays into this whole Native American theory because like it's the native american symbols and actually if you go deeper with that they're like i think they're called sun dancers or sun dance symbols and they're like very they're spiritual 
they're like positive symbols. They also, two of them are like uh, female figures dressed in blue. So like, there you go. <laughs> very similar to the twins. Yep. All that stuff's very face value. Okay, I get that. The tennis ball thing also has something to do with this theory though, because you see him throwing the tennis ball against the wall. When's the next time you see the tennis ball? Oh, it was, oh there, that ball rolls up to Danny. <laughs> From room 237. And then Danny goes in there. I mean, Fuck. yeah, it's like to me, it's there. It's there. It, the very, le- I mean, and again, I think you could take the whole thing and replace the sexual part with just, okay, well, Jack, like, beat him up. Except yeah. for the Playgirl magazine. Like, that touch brings it to a new level where I'm like, I'm almost, I'm almost like kind of. 100% sure that that Yeah, that that, that little tidbit is weird. Yeah. I did not know that. I'm going to have to watch it again mm-hmm. and figure it out. Um to counterpoint what we were we were talking about a little bit ago whereas I don't think Jack shines mainly cuz I think that uh his uh his sh- what you would put as his shining or the things that he's seeing are more drawn on by hallucination and like sleep deprivation and lack of sanity. Whereas um, like Dick and Danny's are like pre-established, right? You know, like you're, you're seeing stuff that Danny has that he can do it in the beginning of the movie before the hotel is even shown to him. Uh, Dick already has that connection with Danny. The second they see each other, he knows it's happening. The ones that you're seeing but from how? Jack, the ones that you're seeing from Jack are starting when he's clearly been like sleep depraved and True. is just going insane True. and is envisioning things that he wants to see mm, to an but, extent. But like true, but also not true because like technically I think you could look at the scene where he is looking at the model hedge maze when they're in the hedge maze as him shining it almost is presented as if like he's looking down and then you get this overhead shot which you all of a sudden realize is actually they're actually there they're They're walking through the actual maze yeah yeah. um so it feels sort of like and and i've i've heard that described as jack shining at them in that that's the way people describe that scene or whatever i also think that the um like if okay so if jack's not shining right yep and if if the shinings are hallucinations then how do we explain how jack got out of the freezer cuz to me either the ghosts it's either the ghosts are real or jack also has these you know, telepathic, psychokinetic type abilities. So, like, he could, I guess, he opened the door. He did it himself right. with, his, with his psychic Well, powers. why not both with, like, the ghost being real because it's could actually... Be. Well, I mean, both as in, like, a ghost situation could be real because, like, there. I don't think there would be a reason that Danny would be able to see it and shine into it if it wasn't an actual thing. And so I think that the ghosts are an actual being in the hotel, but I think that... His connection, like Jack's connection with people, are based on hallucinations because they're only people that he's thinking about seeing and wants to see. You know, he's only seeing the bartender because he wants a drink. He's only like seeing the guy who killed people before because he's thinking about that. He had that nightmare. Everything is conveniently popping up for him, whereas Danny is just being forced 
to know what's going on. Right. What, what actually happened with the... That's the, that's the other thing, too, is Danny's things are based on the actual tragedy, whereas most of Jack's, until he gets the idea of killing, nothing has anything to do with the actual tragedy right. that happened well, at the hotel. It's just him seeing, seeing things. Right, and if you... Well, yeah, and if, like, you think about it, you don't actually ever see uh, any of them, I don't think see the same ghost no because you see danny sees the twins jack sees lloyd and he sees grady yep and you know the the other people but specifically them and the woman danny mentions a woman but you never actually get to see danny seeing yeah what she yeah the woman Yeah. Yeah, yeah and then only Wendy sees the two ghosts that she sees. You right. know what I mean? Yep. So, like, it could be also, like, I think there is a strong theory that, like, the whole thing could be cabin fever and that, like, Danny has some sort of, like, power and, like, so it, 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 what Halloran is saying is true, but everything they, like, the, I, I operate from the ghosts cannot harm me sort of, thing like you can see this stuff but it actually can't do anything to you it's can only can try to manipulate you to do something for it you know and that fits in with how it manipulates jack it wants jack to join them to become ghosts with them and to bring his family along yeah because that's how it's always been you know regardless of whether yeah. why that what that means but i like, don't necessarily think that he needs to be shining to see that i don't think he needs to be i just i really i think because of the connection between him and danny and the fact that they're like they're like we said sort of mirror images of each other as father and son it would make sense if he passed down. The yeah. Tree. yeah. Even yeah, if yeah. it's just that he has some latent ability towards that, that in the circumstances is being brought out. Like, right. Right. Because one of the things in the novel, like Danny in the novel, I guess realizes that his shining is like making the hotel. It's like making it worse, but he decides to stay for the sake of Jack because he thinks that like, it will make his father happy if they all stay there, um, even though he knows that like his power is making it worse. And while I, I think he may have like a bit used that theme, I really think that when you, it's, it's because what you, what you see them do with their power essentially. And the fact that like, they both have these dream, like trance, like state visions like Jack is like I had a nightmare. Well, like I don't know. You're like lying. You're like in a very weird position with your head down at a desk, screaming. Yeah. You know, like were you really sleeping or are you having like a trance-like vision, like Danny had had before, or like you see Halloran going into like this trance-like, like frightened-looking state when he's you know being communicated with Danny and shit like that. Um. Yeah, I guess it leave, kind of leaves a little bit open for interpretation. You know. Right. I think it was I think it was dreaming at that point. And and again, you know, but I think it might not have been like a sleep dream. I think it might have been like a hallucination dream. You know, I think like or or even 
like I said before, that it's not that his parents uh, have the same ability Danny has, but like obvious, I still think it was passed down in some way. So like they have aspects of it or they have a bit of that in them right. too, which is why they're also able to see this stuff. Like, cause I feel like, I don't know. It it just feels like, you know, Halloran isn't like going around warning everybody who goes in there that No, he knew because, specifically right, who to warn. Because he knows certain people won't be affected by it, you know, but like he also knows that like these people are in danger. Yeah. And and that they're in danger of being manipulated by this place. Right. And I think that Jack's the way that Jack's um story mirrors Danny's story their struggles like kind of mirror each other and they just feel it feels it feels like that's what's happening and I but I still think it could also be like again that it's the the right guy at the wrong place at the wrong time sort of thing yeah, like yeah. he just happens to have enough psychic ability to be that receptive to the house because it's not like Grady's like oh Grady like specifically says oh your son has this ability like yeah, we want to know more about that in the book he actually wants Jack to kill his wife and bring him Danny because he want they want that ability oh shit yeah okay and a bit of that is in in the film I think too that like he's kind of interested. It seems like Grady's a little bit interested in Danny's abilities, but like you would think if Jack had the exact same ability, he'd be like, well, you're fine. Like I can just use you. Yeah. You know? Right, 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 right. Or maybe he did. And that was like more like, well, you and your son can like be on our side or whatever, you know? Yep. Yeah. He used uh, Jack as like the leader yep. to it. Just yep. to pull Danny back into it. Um, yeah. What do you think happened to them at the end of the movie? That's my last question to wrap this up before we get to uh, As far as, uh, not Jack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, Jack's dead. Yeah. Um, Halloran's dead. But, like, my biggest question about this is, like, I guess you could, like, say that they could follow, like, the tracks back, but... They're driving down a road that, according to Ullman at the beginning of the film, gets like up to 20 feet of snow on it. Yeah, but Dick just got up there. Yeah, but know, he like, knows the way. Yeah. Like, they ha he He's driven Snowcat before. Like, true. He knows yeah, yeah, he knows he's where doing. he's going. Um, like, But, like, if you're just, you've never been there before. She didn't even drive up there. Like, if yeah. I don't drive somewhere, I don't know how to fuck to get anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, I, mean like, I, figure, I figure that, like, they, you got to assume that they get out. You just got to give it that, like, Maybe. miracle story. Maybe they just froze to death. Well, I mean, there's a sequel. Yeah, and there is. In it. <laughs> but he's alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. It didn't, actually, when I read about the sequel, it didn't actually say what happened to his mother. But it seemed yeah. like she was dead, but. It just from the we'll way it didn't out, describe uh, her. November. Yeah. Because I won't be reading the book, I don't think. One, At least not before the movie. One, <laughs> one, one final thing I have to say. Hell yeah, um, let's dig it. What do you think? Uh, Snowcat in the Snowcat from The Shining versus the uh, Thiacal from The Thing. Uh, which, 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 uh, which, uh, which, 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 which,
which uh, vehicle that got um, which snow vehicle that, that was sabotaged <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is better. Yeah. Oh um, God! I gotta go with the thiacle. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. Like it was. It just. It just happened to be convenient, yeah, yeah. you know. Um. So, are you happy we talked positively we about the we thing for oh, yes. for I'm a quick second? Yes, <laughs> of course I am. Did you hear they found the thing? Some scientists found a uh, some sort of alien life form that was, or some sort of life form that was frozen in the ice in like Antarctica or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> not good not Fuck, good dude. um well this might be the last podcast we yeah, ever do bye <laughs> guys so uh what's uh what do you think what do you think your rating is on this okay here? uh um, five yeah I'm gonna, <laughs> come on. yeah are you out of your yeah. fucking mind of yeah. course we're gonna the shiny five it's a they, i don't want to say it's a perfect movie because it's not but it's a <clears> damn fucking good movie and i can watch it time and time again i've watched it I don't know how many times now, and you just dropped a bomb on me. That's gonna. Yeah. It gives me another yeah. reason to watch it. Yeah, you I know? feel like there's I more feel like more. there's probably more if you wanted to look harder. Cause, uh, I feel like Kubrick made puzzle boxes, sometimes, or at least, in general, his films have that puzzly feeling. Totally. But this one is the most. Uh, puzzly of them all. Oh my all, god! I think. Yeah, there's just so much yeah. fucking going on, yeah. and you really gotta be, you really gotta be completely immersed in it. There's not really much right. of a way right. to. Yeah, I mean, to we passively watch. We it, talked you know? uh, a lot about tons of stuff tonight, but like, there's even a bunch of stuff there's we tons missed that I just you know we, t- we couldn't even like, touch on. You know, when when Jack is like walking down the same hallway, he kills Halloran. He fucking throws his tennis ball in the ground like exactly where he kills Halloran. Yeah, and shit. like you know, there's just there's lots and lots of stuff, and you can read read deeper and deeper into it. Yeah. Um, the music. We barely talked about the fucking amazing like we didn't even score. Talk about the music. Yeah. The music makes it as fucking spooky oh, as I'll it is for a lot definitely, of parts. There definitely have been plenty of it playing throughout the episode because Oh, for sure. It definitely we're is spooky, great. Guys. Yeah, gotta get spooky. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean the, the the soundtrack makes scenes that aren't as thrilling and suspenseful as like meets the eye. Right. Way more thrilling and suspenseful than they are. Right. Well like he does this It really carries they, you into spooky it, land. It does this weird thing where sometimes it syncs up with cuts or reactions or whatever. And other times it just doesn't. Yeah. Just create like there's one particular scene I'll always remember. It's Danny's like uh biking or big wheeling oh, yeah. through one of the hallways. My favorite scenes of the movie. And like there's this long, prolonged, like aggressive, like just sound that keeps ramping up and then all of a sudden it's like bah! but yeah, nothing like still going. coincides yeah. like danny just is just riding and he just turns the corner like it's like tricking you into being like, oh what the fuck is yeah that? right like, you know? what the fuck is yeah. happening right and now just being being as on edge yeah. i really feel like if if there's one thing i know for sure he did in this movie one thing that i can say like without equivocation is 100% what he did and that is he wanted to give the viewers cabin fever. Yeah. Just like the character. For sure, so. for sure. And you can gauge that based on how many different rooms are right. in like the bulk of the movie, right? Which is really not a lot. And it's it's draining to watch a movie mm-hmm. like that sometimes. Yeah, think of how like confining it is for such a large building, you know. Yeah, like it's you're in a massive hotel but you only see like four settings, mm-hmm. you know. Um so, I guess that'll carry us to 
Yeah, the void to the the final. Um, I'm just gonna launch it from uh, right, first to th- it first to third. I'm going uh, Shining, Houseu, and then Hell House LLC. Yeah, keep it quick. Same. Yep. Um, I just think that's pretty so pretty cut and dry. We lied. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Remember that time that yeah. we told you that didn't mean the Shining was gonna win? Well, like, and it's it's uh again, it's the better movie. Like Houseu's probably my favorite this week, but uh. Like I can't deny, you know, just the the sheer amount of great stuff that you can talk about, you can pick from, you can. It's seminal. It's uh, landmark, and I think that a lot of horror movies would do uh, themselves a great service to look more at what The Shining did and go for more of that style than the jump scares yeah you know absolutely as i mentioned in the previous episode uh jump scares are not my thing right. not only because i'm a big baby but because i just think it's a cop-out and a gimmick yeah. and you can there there are a million ways to scare somebody or intimidate somebody or thrill yeah. somebody or give someone suspense without a jump scare exactly. and the shining does that in so many yep. different ways yeah i don't I don't. I hate actually movies like Paranormal Activity. Yeah, that fuck that yep. movie, man. That not scary. Stupid. No. I was like, this is not. No, scary it's just dude. The all. jump scare shit is so fucking dumb and gimmicky. It's yep. it's such a cop out of a like, thriller. Like, like sometimes you can cut someone's fucking chest open. You like all of a sudden they pop up just bleeding all over right. the place. It's like well, word, see, jump scary gore. That's fucking those those type of jump scares will get me. The well, problem yeah. with Paranormal Activity is that, like, I literally was watching it with a few people, and they were like, oh, and I was just like, yeah, you see it coming oh. a mile away, <laughs> Yeah, you know? I'm like, I was, it's just like, okay, it was just, that's when it happened. Like, yeah. there was a few that maybe I was like, oh, okay, whoa. But, like, yeah, it never. Being loud, being yeah. loud and, like, flashy isn't scary. No. Like, that's not scary. That's, like, that scares you yeah. because, like, it's just a blast on your senses. Exactly. You know? Have, like, I if have you z- yell in someone's ear when it's dead silent, they're going to jump and scream. Yeah. I have that's not zero, scary. zero connection to the characters in it. Why should I... I? You feel scared because you put yourself in the shoes of a character. Right. The best... To me, the best horror movies have great, or at least hateable, characters who are going to be in peril. Right. You know? Because... Otherwise, why do you give a shit about them? Yeah, you know, exactly. You don't <laughs> because no, they're not interesting or they're not, you know, they don't they don't stand out to you. They don't jump out at you. So, like, if you're going to make a horror movie, you've got to make the 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 uh, prey as interesting as the predator. Right. You know, yep, and I think totally agree. that's what The Shining, that's what Houseu, that's what Hell House all did this week. You know, yep. another totally one agree. where you get total recommendation all across the board yeah I, I suggest if you haven't seen any of these movies watch mm-hmm. them all they're great yeah, and if yeah. you have watch them again they're, they're fun exactly so we will be continuing in our next episode the Halloweeny themes and uh, so next time we will be doing demons and cursed objects or curses I guess just demons and curses we'll yeah, say yeah. Um, it doesn't just have to be an object it could be other curses but uh, so I don't think you've picked one yet, but I yeah, do yeah. have a pick. I'm going to stick with uh, Japanese films, and my pick is Oni Baba. Okay. Which is a very fun film, kind of about demons, about cursed masks. So it kind of fits both of them Hell a little yeah. bit. I'm ready to watch it. I'm yeah. excited. 
And I'm excited to hear what your pick will be. And you guys out there in uh, movie land, if you want, or if you feel like it, you can go on to facebook.com slash mymoviesbetter. You can follow us. You can join our group. And you can vote for the movies we watch on the group. You literally pick it, and then we talk about it like we just did for The Shining. We didn't pick The Shining. You guys did. No, you did. And we just popped off about it. So thank you for that. So, as always, thank you for listening. Please like, share, and subscribe. and Leave us a review. Yeah, review. Do all that stuff. Thank you to Sean Kennedy for your lovely review. And I know you wrote, you've uh, root for Dylan. Say, yeah, go Dylan. Like, that's, that's my good. boy. That's good. That's yeah. my boy. I appreciate I was, it. I was like, oh, that's cute. Heartfelt. So, Heartfelt. Uh, Congrats. I root for Dylan, too. You know, I'm trying, man. I'm trying. (laughs) Yeah, I got a head start on you, so it's not fair. Yeah, (laughs) Um, we're good. We're good. But uh, as always, um, you know, good night, good luck, go fuck yourself, and have a great time doing it. Yeah, fuck you. Thanks. Oh, bye. (laughs) Bye, guys.